Well, here we are, good friends. It's good to be back together again. We are in the book of Malachi. And if all goes well and the Lord tarries, we're hoping to finish the book of Malachi today. I believe there's no basketball games, no football games on, so we got lots of time. Uh, and we could go as far as we need to. But we are in uh, the last verse of chapter 2. Uh, we're going to make our way through three, and then there's just a few verses in chapter four. So that's our goal. That's our intention uh, today, this week. I'll remind you, we are at the second and fourth Sunday of the month. We're at the fourth, and so we have our prayer meeting tonight uh, that begins at 6.30. I don't see Bob and Judy. Okay, good. You're, you're healthy again and back. Good. Great to see you. One of us is. Let's pray. Father, we are... We are really, really appreciative of the gift of the Word of God. And Lord, I, I always, I'm just reminded again of those that died preserving this for us. And even today in the world, those that have to uh, read the Word almost in like hiding, they have to keep it from the authorities. So thank you for the gift and the freedom that we have here. We pray for you to bless the Word once more. We ask that you would minister to our hearts. I imagine we'll be challenged by some things as we, we want to be by the word of God. We pray that our heart's posture would be to receive from you, Lord, that we might grow. Lord, I know there's some of us that come and this week's been challenging. It's been difficult. And we really just need to draw near to you. And I pray you would use your word to do that in our lives. Lord, your word is alive. It says that we've come to know that. And so once more, we pray that it would be living and active in our hearts, and you'd bless it as it goes forth. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been working through the Minor Prophets. We've been working through the book of Malachi today. I think we come to the last study of the Old Testament. Now, we, we, didn't fin we haven't finished all of the Old Testament. We're working through the book of Malachi, but we come to the last study in the books of the minor prophets and we've learned some things in our study a couple things that we have it's good to be reminded of is the timing of the book it was written around the year 440 bc that's important because we know that's about 75 years after the children of judah the jewish people will just say returned to the area of israel or to jerusalem they had been taken away into captivity because of their sin and they had returned to the land. God brought them back to the land. And we're talking about now about 75 years after that. You remember that those that did come back to the land did so voluntarily. They chose to come back to the land. They were given an option by their, their captors. You can stay here and continue the life that you've built here in captivity, a little bit of freedom, even in the midst of that captivity, or... You can go back to the land of your fathers. You'll still be subject to us, but you'll be subject to us there. And we learned that just a small percentage, five, six, maybe 10% of the population decided they would go back to the land of Israel or Jerusalem and the surrounding uh, villages. The rest decided, no, it's cool here. We like it here. And so those that did go back to the land were, if you will, the cream of the crop of society. These were those that were hungry to see God glorified by the evidence of their life in that land. And they wanted to live their life in such a way. And so all of the sacrifices that it required, they were willing to take. They were hungry for God. And they wanted to be the people of God in the city of God. 
And so they went back to that land. Here now, 75 years later, those same people or the descendants of those people, kind of that cream of the crop of the most spiritual of that society, they have grown complacent. They've begun to make compromises. They're still doing the rituals. They're still going to, to temple. They're still offering their offerings. They're still doing the feast, all those things that they have to do. But there's a complacency that has developed in them. They're going through the motions. To quote that New Testament verse we looked at, they have the appearance of life, but there's no presence of life. There's no power of life that is inside of them. And the book of Malachi's purpose was to call that complacent people back to himself. And so this morning, we've worked our way through much of the book. Today we come to the last verse of chapter 2. Read it with me or you follow along. It says this, You have wearied the Lord with your words, they're confronted as, saying. He says, But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now again, as they have been doing throughout this book, God brings an accusation and they answer the accusation. And they answer it with a question. And, and we saw that phrase repeated uh, regularly, but you say. God says this, but you say that. Here they answer it with the question. He says, you wearied me. He says, how have we wearied him? Seven times now in this book, or total in the book, we're going to see God will make a direct statement, and they will either directly or indirectly criticize God for that statement. I can't believe you're saying that to us. How rude of you, God, is kind of their response. They, they, he says, you wearied me. They say, how? Give us evidence to support your accusation against us. I mean, what, what, it's so rude. It really is. They say, how have they wearied him? Malachi goes on. He provides the answer. Well, you've wearied him, verse 17, by saying, or, yeah, by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? And so you have here a group of complacent believers, and they are faulting God for the way in which he manages world affairs. You ever done that? You ever faulted God for the way in which he's operating? God, I don't like how you're working. I don't like the way you're doing this thing, God. Yeah, we do it. Uh, it's not that uncommon, I think. And so as these folks observed things in life, the way life was operating, their conclusion was that those that do good, and of course they meant themselves, that those that do good suffered misfortune, while everyone that did evil, well, they had everything work out for them in this life. You know, there was a New York Times bestseller in the early 2000s that addressed this topic. The title of the book it was written by a Jewish rabbi. The title of the book is Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. That doesn't make sense to us, does it? Bad, if God is in control, bad thing, or good things should not happen to bad people. Bad things should happen to bad people, and good things should happen to me because I'm a good person and I'm in that crowd. So we have here this group. They are accusing God of being unjust. It's incredibly arrogant for these finite human beings to do that. And yet, as we look in the scriptures, and I imagine as we look in our own lives, we find it's incredibly common, don't we? Remember all the way back to the beginning? They sinned. God called them out on it. Their response was, well, Lord, the only reason I did it is because of that woman you gave me. So he turns his attention. So it's your fault, God. Then he turns his attention to Adam, and he says, well, it's the serpent that you made. Everyone's blaming everybody else. It's God's fault. 
not their own. It's very arrogant, but it's also very common. Now notice their second question, verse 17. They say, where is the God of justice? Justice they want. Where's the justice? I think we should all be very careful about demanding that God execute justice. Now, I don't think their error is in expecting that God would be just. Genesis chapter 18 refers to God as the judge of all the earth. That could be translated as the just one of all the earth. He is the just one, and he will bring justice. So I don't think their error is that they're expecting that justice will come. Their error is in considering themselves to be among the righteous that don't need justice to come against them. Does that make sense? That's their error. They wanted justice from God, when in reality, they were just as wrong as those they wanted God to bring justice against. And so instead, they should have been thankful that rather than experiencing God's justice for their sin, that they had actually been the recipients of God's grace. Here's an important question I think we should each be asking ourselves is this. Do you find yourself longing for God to pour out his justice on others or his grace on others? As you think about other folks, do you find yourself longing for God to pour out his justice on others or his grace? I think that is an indicator of where our hearts are at. We should be people that long for the grace of God. I think it's a telling indicator. Now, the scripture's clear. There is a day coming when God's justice will be poured out on this fallen world. The scripture is very clear. And as you move into chapter 3, we come to that. He's going to talk about that. But in this moment in time, we are living in days of grace. And our heart's desire should be that God will pour out his grace both on our lives and be thankful for it, but also on the lives of even those that we feel don't deserve it. Because, again, none of us deserve it. Amen? Would you agree with that? Well, he continues in verse 3. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, or chapter 3. And he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, remember the priest, And he will refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Verse 5 continues. And then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, against the widow and the fatherless, against uh, who, who do that against the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Where's the justice? Well, he, he speaks of it. And he speaks of that day when the Lord will draw near for judgment. Verse 5, look at it. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. Prior to that, a gr- to that great and awesome day, if you look down at verse 5 of chapter 4, go all the way down to verse 5 of the next chapter, chapter 4, prior to that awesome day, we are told that Elijah the prophet will first be sent. I'll read it to you. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet 
before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of their fathers, of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. It would seem that verse 1, then, of chapter 3, where we are, would be referring to the coming of Elijah, therefore, spoken of in that chapter 4, verse 5 vote. Are you with me? Everybody's here with me still? It would seem that, because look at verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before you. And then chapter 4, verse 5 talks about Elijah the prophet being that messenger to prepare the way before that great and that awesome day. And so I think that phrase certainly applies to Elijah. However, in our study of the New Testament, we see that it is applied not to Elijah the prophet before the second coming of Jesus Christ, but in the New Testament, we see that it's applied to John the Baptist before the first coming of Jesus Christ. You can read it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All three of those Gospels say that. Here's how Matthew says it. He says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judah, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And so John the Baptist was the early, and we'll call it the partial fulfillment of this sent messenger that Malachi is talking about in these two chapters. The complete and the full fulfillment of this prophecy will be fulfilled in the person of Elijah at the second coming. Is everybody here? You're, you're with me? You're kind of, sort of, not really following along anymore? You've given up? All right, that's okay. You may recall, Elijah the prophet never died. We've been studying this uh, on our Wednesday evening studies. We saw this uh, at the very beginning of the book of Second Kings, where he journeyed off into the wilderness. He eventually crossed over the Jordan River. He was alone there with the Lord as others were observing him. Uh, Elisha, his servant, comes alongside and stands nearby. And then we read this. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared. They separated Elijah and Elisha, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. And so as the angel told John's father, John the Baptist, you remember in the New Testament when John's mom, Elizabeth, conceived, John, that was revealed to John's dad, a guy by the name of Zechariah. And it was revealed to him that this baby would minister in the spirit and in the power of Elijah, and that he would prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. This is what it tells us in Luke chapter 1. Now the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. Talks about him being taking the Nazarite vow in verse 15, goes on in 16, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. So there will be a literal coming of Elijah the prophet. Never died taken up into heaven, will come to this earth and play a part in last day's prophecy. But here we see it twice applied to John the Baptist in our chapter 3, verse 1 passage. He says, Behold, I will send my messenger. Now what becomes clear 
is he's not the only messenger that's going to come. You'll look in that verse, you can kind of see it as it's all in front of you there on the screen. There's two different uses of the word messenger. One in the very first line, a, a second time down in the third or fourth line that is there. And so this messenger, John the Baptist, will go forth before another messenger. Look at the second half of verse 1. It says, and the messen- it says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That second part's not referring to John the Baptist. It's referring to Jesus Christ. Speaking of that second messenger, Malachi goes on, and he, he says how he will suddenly come to his temple. You remember those two old folks, the old lady and the old woman, Ananias and, uh, I don't know what their names were. You got them, good. An old man and an old woman were there at the temple, and they were waiting because God had kind of revealed to them that they would see the coming of God's Messiah. You read about it in your Gospels, in the beginning pages of your Gospels. And they saw it. The the man there, I think his name is Simeon, I forget, Ananias. He says, now my eyes have seen My eyes have seen what the Lord has promised. They suddenly came. Top that off, later on in the Gospels, how many times did Jesus go into the temple and he's throwing over tables and he's confronting people in there? He suddenly came to his temple. It's referring to his first coming. In verse 3, however, it shifts to his second coming. We'll read it again. Verse 2, I mean. He says, who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? Well, that, that doesn't really describe his first coming, does it? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify them, it says. Verse 5, he says, and I will draw near to judgment. Their question was, where is the God of justice? Where is the God that judges? Well, he says, I will draw near for you for judgment. And so although his judgment, it seems, on the evils of this world have long been delayed, it certainly has not been canceled so the people demanded justice and God would bring it and God will bring it but not before first reaching out to the people in grace and in mercy and so in spite of their demand for justice what does God send to the Jews he sends his son he sends his own presence in the person of his son he sends Jesus Christ who does not Uh, bring immediate judgment upon those that deserve it, no matter how much they do deserve it. But he sends his son to redeem them of their sin. He would come, as the scripture says, to seek and to save the lost. He would come to bring healing. He would come to purify his chosen people. You remember when Jesus went into his hometown synagogue of Nazareth? This is Luke chapter 4. And there he was asked, would you like to, to read today's passage from the, from the scroll of Isaiah? And so Jesus does. He takes the scroll of Isaiah that was given to him. He opens it up to what we know to be Isaiah chapter 61. They didn't have the designations then, but we do now. And he begins to read this as he sits there. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He says, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's where the Lord stopped, rolled the scroll back up and handed it to whomever. And as he was doing that, he then said this, 
This is found in the book of Luke, chapter 4. He said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That is, I'm the guy it's writing about, he says to them. And if you look at those things that he just read, it describes perfectly what Jesus did in his first coming. He preached good news to the poor. He bound up the brokenhearted. He proclaimed liberty to the captives. And he proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. If you look closely, however, what you'll notice is Jesus stopped in the middle of a sentence. He didn't get to a period and stop, as we would expect, but he stops at a semicolon or a comma, we might say. You can notice that if you go back and you can look closer. The Isaiah passage continues this way. And so it talked about uh, proclaiming liberty to the captives, opening of the prison to those who are bound, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. And then it goes on and it says, and the day of the vengeance of our God. The first portion speaks of the first coming. The second portion speaks of the second coming. If you will, the church age that we've been living in the last 2,000 years, we're living in a comma. We're living in a semicolon. Not much mention of it is made at all. This complace, these complacent men and women of Malachi's day, they were crying out for justice. We are in the day of grace, thank God, and how thankful we should be that we are, that we might experience God's grace and not be judged for the sins that every one of us deserves to be judged for. We've all come up short. He goes on in verse 6. He says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, you're not consumed. I don't change. That's why you haven't been judged. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes, and you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Sounds great, right? Notice what they say. But you say, how shall we return? Meaning, we have nothing to return from. We're right where we need to be. He says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? He answers, in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. And then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is perhaps the most, uh, the most classic statement on the immutability of God may be found in the Bible. Immutability means doesn't change. It's, he says, I am the Lord, I do not change. I wonder what that means. I think it means I am the Lord, I do not change. He says, therefore, O children, you are not consumed. Now, it seems kind of random, doesn't it? You know, we're talking about this other stuff and, you know, second coming, first coming, and all of a sudden, oh, by the way, I am the Lord, I do not change. And like, Where does that come from? I don't think it's as random as it might appear to be. Because God mentions his immutability here to make the point that he will continue to be unchanging in his faithfulness to Israel. That's what he's going to go on and he's going to talk about. And so they have been accusing him, God, where are you? 
we've been living a good life and you're not blessing us. They haven't been, but they keep saying that they are. God, you haven't been faithful. God, you haven't kept up your side of the bargain. And he says, no, I'm the Lord. I do not change. And the proof of it, you haven't been consumed despite your sin. Because I've made a promise to you that I wouldn't. Don't miss how incredibly gracious this is of God. Because they have been accusing him and accusing him and challenging him and questioning him of being unfaithful. And he says, no, I've been faithful. I've been faithful, and that's why you're not consumed. God replies that he's unchanging precisely in his unfaithfulness. And the evidence of that, of his faithfulness, is that they're still around to question him. Now he's going to go on and he's going to make that point. Proving to them how he has been faithful. Or, if you will, proving to them how they can know that he has been faithful. And so we read in verse 7, I've read it, but let's read it again. He says, from the days of your father, you've turned aside from me and my statutes. You've not kept them. He says, return to me and I will return to you. And yet you say, how shall we return? So God hadn't consumed them, but he did remove his hand of blessing from them. And we've talked about that. If they wanted to be in their sin, God says, I can't bless that sin. You want to go out and rob banks and things like that? I can't bless you for that. Don't come to me and say, all right, Lord, just help us this one more time to rob this bank. I can't bless sin. And so you want to live in your sin, I'll, I'll pull back and let you do what you want to do. Right, so he hasn't consumed them, but he has not been blessing them. Again, the phrase we've used is he removed his hand of blessing and protection from their lives. But because he is ever faithful to them, he invites them to return. Again, 7 says, return to me and I will return to you. Again, this sounds great. It, it, and, and they all lived happily ever after, you know, is, is how it looks like it might end. Unfortunately, notice, once more they dispute the Lord's accusation. They say, how shall we return? Now, if you read that rather quickly, you could think, okay, good. They're like, all right, I need to return. You know, how do I get back there, Lord? But that's not where this is coming from. Again, where it's coming from is, what do you mean return? How could you tell us to return? We're already as close to you as we possibly can be. There's nothing to return from. And graciously, and they've done this throughout the book, seven total times in the book where they challenge God for something he says about them. Graciously, and by that what I mean is there's no lightning bolts coming out of heaven, which you might expect there could be. Graciously, the Lord answers them. And so they say, he says, how shall you return? Well, you can return to me through your giving. The actual wording, look at verse 8. He says, well, man robbed God, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have, we, how have uh, we robbed you, he says, in your tithes and your contributions? So to the midst of their hard heart, they, uh, once more they say, well, what do you mean we've robbed you? Here we go again. And again, without lightning bolts from heaven, he explains it to them. He says, you robbed me by withholding your tithes and offerings. Now, the tithe is the tenth. And under the law of Moses, the Israelites were required to give a tenth of all of their produce and livestock to the Lord. Now, that was in addition to the numerous other offerings that they could bring and contributions that they could bring as well. 
But the basic tenth that they were commanded to bring in the law of Moses, that was presented to the priests, it was presented to the Levites, and it had the effect of enabling those individuals uh, to minister uh, professionally, full-time, if you will. You can read about it if you want in Leviticus chapter 27. In actuality, the Old Testament tithe, because there were multiple tithes that were expected to be brought. In actuality, the Old Testament tithe works out to about 23% of a person's income. And so you brought the first tithe, 10%. There was a second tithe of 10%. And then every three years, you were to bring another tithe. And so we'll just call that 3.3%. So in actuality, it worked out to about 23.3, I think, percent. I forget. Math is complicated. The Jews were forsaking that. They were forsaking the tithe that they were instructed and commanded by the law to bring. And thus they were robbing God in the process. Now you might say, as we're talking about tithing, tithing defies logic. I've got bills to pay. Perhaps you're thinking, perhaps they were thinking. I can't just be giving away all this money. I have these bills to pay. I remember talking with someone one time and the, the husband shared what the wife's thinking was, but I don't want to throw the wife under the bus, so let's just pretend it was a wife and the husband. Anyway, uh, she's, one of them said, that's like a car payment. Tithe, that's like a car payment. And she thought it was the craziest thing in the world. It defies logic. I got bills to pay. And you want me to start giving all this money away? It is. God promises, though, trust me in this, and you will see how I will provide for you. I'm reminded of this. God's provision of the manna in the Old Testament. You remember manna was that food from heaven. It was like a bread of some sorts that God provided for them as they wandered through the wilderness. And every day they were told they had to get up, they had to go, they had to gather this manna, and that would provide for their family food for the day. And of course, you can imagine, and God said, every day I want you to do this. Don't get a whole bunch extra and store it in, you know, your kitchen for tomorrow. Every day I want you to trust me that it'll be there the next day. And you can imagine the first day the people would go out and they'd get a whole bunch and they'd stock it away. And, what are you doing? You're not allowed to do that. Oh, nobody will know. And then next day it all began to get spoiled and have worms and all that kind of stuff. And they quickly learned that they should obey God in this matter. Now, here's the really interesting thing. On the sixth day... God said, on this day, I want you to get twice as much. No, Lord. It's all going to get spoiled. It's all going to be bad. It's going to have the worms. Remember, we can't keep it overnight. He said, yeah, I know. But on this day, I want you to get twice as much so that you don't have to go out and work on the seventh day. I want you to rest on that particular day. And miraculously, God did what God said he would do. He caused that manna not to spoil on that particular day. The people had to learn to believe God, to trust God, and to move forward in faith with what God had said. If you will, the whole thing was like a test for them. Will you trust me on that seventh day that I know what I'm doing, or on that sixth day that I know what I'm doing? Will you trust me in that? Will you obey me in that? Again, the whole thing was a test from God. Well, here, in our particular passage, we see another test. Would they or would they not trust God that he would faithfully provide for them as they respond to who he is, what he said, and they obey and they walk in that obedience. Again, it's the exact situation that we have 
with the tithes and the contribution things. Do you believe that I will be faithful to provide for you or not? He said to, he's saying to them so many words, you have said that I stopped being faithful to you. That's what you said, right? A few verses earlier that I have stopped being faithful. Well, test me in this way and see if I have stopped being faithful. Start doing the tithes and the offerings again, he says to them. And see if I will not provide for you all that you need and pour it out upon you. Open the storehouses of heaven, he says. Now, this raises the question of whether Christians, us, here in the 21st century, should tithe or not. Now, let me say this. I do not think this passage is really given to us as a teaching passage on tithing in our Bibles. I don't think we want to just jump in, pull this verse out of context, and say, now we, we should all start tithing, and God will bless us for doing so. I think it's important for us to remind ourselves, in the context of the passage, it's a lesson on his faithfulness in the context of the passage. That being said, we don't talk a lot about giving and money here. And so this is as good as time as ever to kind of address the issue. Who's excited? All right. <laughs> He's trying to make a point about his faithfulness. Should Christians tithe, though? Well, the elders and I of this church, we do not believe that there is a legal requirement from God's word to tithe that is carried over to the New Testament. Does that surprise you to hear that? It might surprise some people. Think, oh, how are you guys going to get paid? Shouldn't you make the people do it, whether there's a requirement or not? We try to be faithful to what we think God's word is saying. And we do not think there is a legal requirement that carries over in the New Testament. That being said, I personally tithe, and I have for the last 35 years. And so whereas I don't think there is a legal requirement to do it, I do believe that the New Testament encourages us, instructs us, and perhaps even commands us to give. But nowhere in the New Testament are believers instructed to give a specific tenth of their income or any other proportion, 20%, 30%, 40%, or any other portion in the New Testament. This is what I think the New Testament teaches regarding giving. 1 Corinthians 16.2, it says, Now on the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside, store it up as he may prosper, so that there will, so that there will be no collecting when I come. I think that teaches us two principles. Number one is that giving should be systematic, that is thought through. Not the bucket comes by and you're like, oh, gee whiz, you know, here, you know, kind of thing. You think it through. And secondly, I think this also, as he may prosper, it speaks of it being proportionate to how the Lord has provided for us or blessed us. It should be proportionate to that. Second thing I see in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, it says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. There, I think the lesson is that we are to give liberally and generously, as opposed to being stingy. You think of how much we're willing to spend on ourselves for things. Oh, that's so much money. That's crazy to give that to the cause of the Lord. I think a third thing we learn, Matthew 6, 3, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. I think that teaches the principle of giving secretly. And by that, what we mean is, that doesn't mean you have to give anonymously. Some people wonder, like, you know, I, 
the, the government gives me like a deductions on my taxes, but I want to give secretly, and so how are they going to know that I get? I, I don't think it's saying that nobody can know. I think the point is we don't come marching up to the front. I am now giving my big gift, and everybody, no one's looking. Everybody, look, here it goes. You know this kind of thing. I think that's what it means. If you're trying to impress everybody else and draw attention to yourself with your gift, you can just keep your gift. All right, and that's not me speaking. I think that's the Lord speaking. I, I'm not. You, well, you get it. Lastly, 2 Corinthians 9 says this, Each one must give, that, give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. And so we don't manipulate you. Don't let yourself be manipulated into giving and things like that. God loves a cheerful giver. Go before the Lord, meet with the Lord, let the Lord impress it upon your heart. If you're married, work it out with your spouse and make your determination in that way. Jesus said this. Jesus said, wherever a man's treasure is, there will his heart be also. And I think that is a helpful thing for us to keep in mind as we are determining what would the Lord have me to give to his work. All right, so those are just sort of a few of the indicators. Let me just make a couple of practical comments about giving because where else are we going to talk about it? I don't know what each of you give. And we do that by design. We have, we have one and a half people that know what people give here because they're the ones that kind of process it. One does it every week and gets it in the computer. The other fills in from time to time when the other person isn't here. So I don't know what people give. And we do that by design. Now, I know people give to this church because somewhere the money's coming from um, here. And I'm just told is what we got. You know, fantastic. Already, but I don't know what you specifically give. So I, I bring that up right now for, for a few reasons. One, we do that by design because I feel that if, if I knew this guy gave a million and this guy gave 50 bucks or gal or whatever, or they gave a million and they gave 50, I have a feeling that I would have a tendency to be a little more concerned about this fine couple. And I don't want to be like that. I don't want to have my ministry tainted, our ministry as a church tainted by our flesh. Does that make sense? That's one of the reasons why we do it. I also bring it up because I, and this is something that we've kind of talked about and wrestled with, some of us here on staff, is if a person newly begins to give here, and we have a lot of new people of late, and a lot of you, you know, have been here for a little while, and you're like, you know what, I like it here. And so you started to support the work, and praise the Lord. You might, almost, you might expect someone to come along and say, nobody even said thank you to me. Nobody came, I, you know, I just gave this gift here. Nobody came up and said, hey, man, thanks so much. Remember, I don't even know that you give. And so if no one came up to you to say thank you for that, we will. It'll be April 15th when that little tax form comes that comes to your house. That's when we send it to you. That's, if you will, when we acknowledge the giving. So please don't be offended if, you know, we haven't come up and patted you on the back or, or even just said a nice thank you. Look, I like thank you. You know, when those little girls are at ShopRite and you're trying to figure another way out the door so you don't have to see them at the door or whatever, you're like, oh, they got me. All right, here. And you put it in. I want one of those little girls to say, thank you, sir. And if they don't, Give me that dollar back, you know, kind of here. I want people to say thank you to me, but that's the reason why we don't. Does that make sense? All right, so if you were hurt by that or offended by that, I'm sorry that that is the case. Please know that we're doing it ultimately 
uh, with good intentions. Last thing that I want to make on this topic, you can give and tithe and give lots of you know, your resources, but have a heart that is very far from God in the process. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 23, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites. For you tithe your mint and your dill and your cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. All right, and so the point that is being made there is they tied everything, they, their bank account, their, their little teeny uh, seeds that they had, the mint and the cumin and all that kind of stuff. They tied every single thing that was theirs. They were honoring God in that way. And yet, look how far their heart was from them. The pastor doesn't say, you know, I don't even know why you're bothering tithing. You shouldn't have to. He said, you should do that. But you shouldn't neglect the weightier things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. And so as you give, seek the Lord, let him minister to your heart, but do so in a way without hypocrisy. So very important. And so certainly this verse can be used as a passage where we, we make some points about giving. But once again, I don't think that's the main reason why the, the issue is brought up here in this passage. I think it's brought up here as an example of how God shows, repeatedly shows himself to be faithful as they trust him. And so I would encourage you in that. If that is an area, giving, that you have been struggling with trusting God in, well, then I'd encourage you. He challenges them. He challenges you. Do you trust God? Will you trust God? Notice how he challenges them. Verse 10. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby... Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of the hosts. Notice what he says there. He says, put me to the test. Now, if that weren't in our Bible, and somebody came to me and they said, you know what, I'm going to test God. I would probably say to them, whoa, I don't know if you want to do that. And yet here we have this passage where God says, I want you to test me in this. I want you to prove me in this here. You almost expect lightning bolts to come down when someone says, I want to test God. And yet he's the one who tells us. And so the reality is it's in our Bibles that God is the one that invites them to challenge him in this way, to test him in this way. He says, test me in this and see. I think we're invited to test God in these things as well. But notice what he also does. Because sometimes we get this message, if you start giving to God, you're going to have so much money poured down into your life, and it's going to, I got a southern accent all of a sudden, it's going to come down and you're going to, it's going to be amazing and, you know, you got to sow your seed, you know, all these kinds of thoughts that are out there. God promises he will provide. Now, sometimes that provision, you start to give and this random check comes to your house, you know, because you overpaid five years ago and we just figured it out and here it is. You're like, wow, the Lord provides. Sometimes it's your boss will call you in and say, you're doing a great job here. We appreciate it. We want to just give you lots more money. Fantastic. I'll take it. And sometimes God provides in that way. But sometimes God provides 
in the verse 11 kind of way. I don't know if we love this. He says, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine and the field shall not fail to bear, uh, to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Sometimes God's provision is in the form of a bigger paycheck, but also sometimes God's provision is in the form of cars that don't break down or washing machines that run far past what their life expectancy should be. And so you're not constantly pulling out another $500, what's a washing machine cost, to buy another washing machine or whatever it may be, because it just keeps running. And every time you go to it, you pet it, and you say, you've been a faithful washing machine, I love you. You know, one more, that's all I'm asking for from you. And it does it. And your car, and I've had so many cars, my prayer life was really good when I was young, because I would get into my car and say, oh, Lord, today. You know, make it run today, Lord. And he would. And I'm driving now a car that's 12 years old or something like that. I don't know what it is. Um, it's an old car. And God's been faithful. And you know what I want? Oh, I want a brand new truck. And I've looked them up. They're like $60,000. And I'm like, all right, Lord, this one will do. You know, and just keep it running here, Lord. And it's not perfect and it's not ideal. But it gets me to where I need to be. And God is faithful. And he provides and we could, you know, my wife and I, we could stop tithing and go out and buy a, a truck or a car, she'd probably get us a car or something or an SUV. But I sure am glad to be part of what God is doing and to trust him in that way and to see him faithfully meet our needs, provide for those needs and far beyond what our needs are, certainly so. But to learn more about him in that lesson and so I, I just really, I want to encourage you. Trust God. Not in only in that area, but in every area. If he's challenging you and he's promised, take this step, trust him in that. And you will discover something about the Lord that would just be so incredibly encouraging in your walk with him. Well, I, I have to continue. He says in verse 13, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it's vain to serve God. What's the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Again, God here saying is, you know, you've been saying a lot of stuff about me and it hurts. It's kind of what he's saying in the beginning of that verse. And again, they're like, we told him about we haven't said anything about you. We haven't spoken about you. And he draws it down to, you have declared that it is vain to serve God. You have said, what is the profit of our keeping his commandments or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Now, put the whole book of Malachi that we've been studying together. These are what they've said about them, about him. In chapter one, they said God did not love them. Later, they said that he was not worthy of their best sacrifices. They said in chapter 2 that he was unjust toward them. They say in chapter 3 that he did not deserve the full tithe. And then they said in chapter 3 that he was unreasonable in calling them to repentance. And so then their conclusion of all those things is it's vain to serve the Lord. Why even bother anymore? What are we getting out of this relationship, God? Now, with that being said, there was a faithful remnant. And there's always a faithful remnant, isn't there? 
as we study the scriptures, as you've probably experienced in your life, there's always that faithful remnant. They're spoken of in verse 16. It says, Then those who feared the Lord, they spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and he heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. And then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve God. He calls that remnant, verse 17, he calls them his treasured possession. It says they found their treasure in him that he found them, if you will, to be his treasure. He goes on in verse chapter 4. He says, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that I will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord. We see the Lord knows how to discern between the righteous and the wicked. And of course, this little passage here, it refers to that Isaiah passage that Jesus didn't read in the New Testament. It refers to the day of the Lord's vengeance. It refers to his second coming. Verse 4, he goes on, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and the awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The book, it closes with an exhortation to remember the law of Moses and with a promise that he will send Elijah to Israel to prepare the hearts uh, before the coming of the Lord. Notice one other thing here. Look at verse 6. It closes with a decree of utter destruction. Some versions word that a little differently, it, where it closes with the phrase, with a curse. And I think fittingly, the Old Testament draws to a close with a reminder to two, of two things. Verse 4, a reminder to keep the law of Moses. And then in verse 6, with a reminder of the curse. And I say that it fittingly finishes that way because it's just one more reminder to every one of us that none of us can perfectly keep the law of Moses. We are to know it, we're to try and to keep the commandments of God, but it's a reminder that none of us can perfectly keep the law of Moses. Every one of us falls short. Every one of us sins and offends God. And of course, the wages of that sin is death and it is separation from God. Now, someone might hear this, and they might say, well, then why even present us with the law of Moses? Why even keep, bring up that we are to keep it if none of us can keep it? And I think the Apostle Paul answers that question. The Bible's so good, isn't it? The Apostle Paul, he answers that question in Galatians chapter 3. He says, therefore, know this, that the law was our tutor, to bring us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. The law of God, the commandments of God, obeying God, that can accomplish a whole lot of things in our lives, but it can only bring us so far. 
It can only get us to the, this far here, but it can't go any further. And if you will, it's like a tutor that comes alongside of us and they're helping us in the process, but they can't take the test with us. The tutor can get us ready for that test, but they can't take the test with us. It can get us so far down the path and it stops. The tutor stops and he says, this is as far as I go. He said, look down there. You see that? I think of John's words in the New Testament. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What the law can do is reveal what we can't do. What the law does is reveal that we are under the curse. But then it points us to the one that took away the curse. And of course, that's Jesus Christ. As we, as we through the law and our understanding of the law, as it becomes evident to us, I can't do this. I can't keep the law. It's at that place that the Lord steps in and he says, I have done it. I've paid the price. I've paid the penalty for your sin. And so it's fitting that the Old Testament ends with the word curse or destruction. I find it very interesting when we compare that with the way that the New Testament ends. Remember, the last book of the New Testament is the book of Revelation. And the second to last book or verse of the book of Revelation, these are the final words of the book of Revelation. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, or Lord Jesus, be with you all. Amen. You remember that word amen means absolutely. So let it be. I agree. And so if you're a sinner, anybody here a sinner? You know, we got a yes from her. And her husband said, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you are a sinner sitting here, you're home, you're watching, and you are one that recognizes that you are rightly under the curse for having violated God's perfect law, what I hope is this today. What I hope is that everyone hearing these words is absolutely aware of this, is that none of us need to remain under that curse. I hope everyone here knows that experientially, but for some of us to start today, just start knowing that in your head. None of us need to remain under the curse of God, under the judgment for our sin, because there is another that has taken our place. There's another that has paid the penalty that was ours to pay, and his name is Jesus Christ, and God wants the grace of Je the Lord Jesus to be with each one of us. Amen? Amen? Amen. That's how the book draws to an end. And so, friends, if you don't yet know that, I encourage you, I'm sure you came with someone, unless you just wandered in, which is awesome, but more than likely, you probably came in with someone today. I encourage you, ask them, could you explain that even more to me and what that means in my own life? And if they feel like they can't, like, I don't know, let's go up front and we'll ask them. He probably knows. I, I have an idea. All right, and I'd love to share with you how Jesus Christ can enter in and wash you of your guilt. Amen? Yeah. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful again. There's a lot of us in here that have come to the cross. We've confessed our need because of our sin. We've received the gift of salvation, and now we're walking in that grace. And Lord, it is a good and help, helpful reminder for us once more to be reminded of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. 
and to sort of take it once more into our lives, to walk in it. Father, I pray for those that don't yet know Christ. Perhaps they're increasingly recognizing that their sin hinders them from a proper relationship with you. Lord, I pray today that you would do a work in their heart where you draw them to yourself, that another has done the work on their behalf. And Lord, we want to be a people that step out in faith, not because of the size of our faith, but because of how much we trust you. And whatever that might be that you're calling us to. If you're calling us to to be givers, then in that. If you're calling us to share our faith with another, then in that. If you're calling us to break off some relationship, then in that. Lord, whatever it might be that you're calling us to, we want to trust you. We want to trust and walk in that trust, that you are faithful. And Lord, I pray like that, that guy in the New Testament, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. I think that speaks of a lot of us in this room. We believe, sure we believe. But it's really hard to step out in faith in certain areas. And so, Lord, help our unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name.